Good morning and welcome to our service. Looks like the house is a little emptier than sometimes, and uh, that's okay, I guess. Spread out a little bit. We're glad each one of you are here. I certainly have enjoyed the the uh, service thus far, the uh, devotional and the uh, Sunday school time. It's been it's been good. We could probably stop right there and go home and, and be blessed. I'd like to uh, start a somewhat of a new series here for the next while. And um, new series, but nothing new to talk about, I guess. Let's put it that way. I would like to talk the next while on the something we call the ordinances in our church. I'm going to give you a little quiz here first, uh, just to start out, because um, I just thought it would be interesting. You, you, you can't fail this quiz. I'm just curious. And so I'm, I, I just have a few questions that I'd like to, uh, to give here, and I'd like you to respond. Could somebody define for me what an ordinance is? What's an ordinance? We use the word, but what is it? Oh boy, all this time we didn't know what we were doing, okay? Physical symbol with a um, spiritual or heavenly um, meaning. Sure, yeah, yeah, very well put. That's exactly right. Everybody agree with that? I'm not going to ask you, he's right, so we won't go there. So some churches say they have sacraments. What's the difference between an ordinance and a sacrament? They refer to the same thing, but they call it a sacrament. What's the difference? What's the technical difference? It's kind of interesting to me that if you read through Men of Simons, he calls a lot of these things sacraments too, but we'll talk about that maybe a little bit later. Dennis, you were going to say something? Sure. Anybody else want to add anything before I go into it? So, so technically, the difference would be is um, we see we would view an ordinance as something that um, is a physical symbol of a heavenly meaning. However, we could we could administer communion to somebody, and it would be perfectly meaningless to that person. Because he's not a he's not a saved person, it would mean absolutely nothing to him. In a sacrament, the sacramental view would mean that we could take the same person, perhaps, and give him communion, and it would impart grace to him. Just that act would impart grace. We we don't view it that way. Uh, we there it could be a, an experience of blessing, and I, I had to think of the primaries uh, verse here this morning. Happy are you if you do these things, all right? So it brings a happiness, it brings a joy, it brings a blessing to our life, but it doesn't necessarily impart grace, the actual physical demonstration of that thing. All right. All right, now let's do this. Let's just rattle off what we call the seven ordinances real quick. Real quick, just shout them out. Number one. Baptism. Baptism. Another one. Marriage. Another one. Communion. Communion. Another one. 
Going with foil. Good. Another one? Three more. What do we do along with communion? What's the other part of our communion service? Foot washing. Two more. Holy kiss. One more. Head covering. All right, we did get them all. Seven of them there. Do all Christian churches believe in seven ordinances? Practice seven ordinances? No, Ellis is not, and that's right. What are the two that all Christian churches do ascribe to? There are two. Baptism and communion. Uh, They all get married, but they don't call it an ordinance, okay? Um, All right, any other? Okay, a couple more here I just, I have here. Has our Mennonite church always ascribed to seven ordinances? Has the Mennonite church always ascribed to seven ordinances? Cheater. (laughs) Okay, he left the cat out of the bag. The answer is no. Does anybody know when they began to do that? Okay, probably nobody does. Does somebody? Just curious. If you do, just quickly. The, The answer is no. Probably less than 100 years that we've actually called, we've actually come up with this seven ordinances thing. Our friend Daniel Kaufman was a uh, was a um, a man that loved to organize things, and he was a deep thinker, and he much influenced the Mennonite church as we know it today. He was the man that we can give the accolades to for setting up seven ordinances. Before that, we didn't talk in terms of ordinances. Um, we just talked in terms of biblical obedience. And as we go through these seven ordinances, I will point out to you some of these that are quite new, quite new ideas, actually. And um, so, indeed, we, we have not always ascribed to something called seven ordinances. Well, lastly... There is an inherent risk comes with practicing ordinances. It, it, you can't get away from it. It's a risk that comes with it. doesn't mean we shouldn't do it, but it will constantly with us. Anybody want to take a stab at what that is? Absolutely. Thank you very much. As long as we do the physical thing, we done it. The other side of that is to take the other position and say the physical means nothing. Let's just get to the substance of the thing. And indeed, the substance is the most important thing. I don't want to minimize that. But it's kind of nice to have both. Um, and anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll probably delve into that a little bit more as we, as we go along too. This morning we're going to talk about um, the ordinance of baptism. And um, I don't know that there's any order of importance here, but I thought we'd start out with baptism because if if one does rise to the top, perhaps that one does, I would say. It is one that every child of God, I believe, should and wants to experience. So this, uh, 
This uh, ordinance of baptism is an interesting one because it seems like this idea of baptism was not new with the with the institution of the New Testament and of the church. John comes along, um, John the Baptist comes along, and it talks about him just, it just speaks of him as baptizing in the Jordan River. And there's, it does not seem like the idea of somebody baptizing was a new idea. He got quite a crowd. He came out and it seemed like everybody from the lowly countrymen to the scribes and Pharisees and soldiers were showing up at the Jordan River to be baptized. And it seems to me that perhaps if this was a, a quite a new idea, you would have had some resistance from the scribes and the Pharisees because they were very resistant to anything that was new. Upon a little bit of, uh, of research, and um, here's where I have to go with, um, with historians that do the research. I did not do primary research on this. But there was a Jewish faction uh, at, during the time of the New, of the new Testament period called the Essenes. I think I'm saying that right, hopefully, Essenes. And these were a uh, very devout communal type of ascetic religious order that lived kind of out in the desert, and they hung their hat on the fact that they lived this primitive, uh, withdrawn sort of life, and um, and they they did they did many. Um, Many interesting things. One of the things they did is they, uh, we assume that perhaps they were the people that, that wrote what we call the Dead Sea Scrolls. That perhaps they were the order that actually wrote those and then we discovered them, you know, however many thousand years later. Perhaps it was that group. But it seems that they were, they also had, um, somewhere picked up the idea that along with uh, circumcision, when a person would join the Jewish order, he should also be baptized. And that probably was something that they, they, uh, would, they drew from the Old Testament ceremonial, uh, rites of, of washing and so on and so on. I, nobody really knows, I guess, but, um, it does seem to be that there was this, this order of Jews that did baptize. And there is some people that speculate that perhaps John identified with this group. Now that is complete speculation. Uh, we have absolutely no reason to think that he he did other than the fact that he did baptize somewhat in the same geographical area and uh, perhaps he was well acquainted with these, uh, with these people. And perhaps people um, um, had the misinformation that he that he identified with them. I, I'll just completely leave that. We really don't have any any biblical ev- evidence of that. Most of this uh, of this baptism during this era would have been something that would have rose out of the post-exilic time period. In other words, after the people of Israel came back from Babylon and prior to the coming of Christ. Kind of those four hundred silent years that we talk about. All right, um, moving on here. In the Old Testament, I'm sorry, in the New Testament, we have three scriptures that point to something that happened in the Old Testament, and it calls it baptism. It likens it to baptism. Um, in 1 Corinthians 10.1, let's, um, let's just look at that real quick. 
goes like this. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, uh, when they did, when this, this whole cloud and sea happening took place in the Old Testament, is it mentioned as baptism? Well, no, it's not. It's not. But, but Paul picks up on this and he call, and he talks about them being baptized unto Moses. So how should we understand this or how should we think about this? Well, obviously, um, these people were not literally baptized, but there's a much deeper meaning of uh, symbolism here in this in this uh, passage that Paul refers to as being baptized unto Moses. And I think it boils down to the dedication, the consecration, the obligation, and so on, that these experiences brought to the people of Israel. And look how it words it. It says they were baptized, not unto God, but unto Moses. Now that's kind of unique wording. But could it be that it, that this was a symbolic, symbolic of the people's submission to Moses? I mean, God came to Moses and he said thus and thus, and Moses relayed that to the people. And the people, if they wanted to get the other side of that Red Sea, they had jolly well had better listen to Moses and what he said. So perhaps the takeaway here is that um, in this passage of scripture, Baptism symbolizes submission. Perhaps we could take that away. In Colossians 2, 11 and 12, we have another, um, another, um, what would I say? Comparison made. I guess comparison would be the word. And this, uh, this time we have the comparison made to circumcision, which was an Old Testament an Old Testament um, rite, Colossians 2, 11 and 12, in whom also ye are circumcised, and the circumcision made with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. So again, we understand that circumcision was a ceremony of consecration and covenant. Um, Old, Old Testament circumcision was this thing of being set apart and different. Here the circumcision of Christ is referred to as being buried with Christ in baptism. So I think, I think it's very easy to get the connection um, that just as circumcision set the Old Testament saint apart from the world around him is different, uh, baptism the same way sets us apart from the world around us and symbolizes covenant and death to sin of the flesh. And then there's one other one in First Peter. First Peter 3, this is probably one that gets referred to more than, than some of the rest. First Peter 3 and verse 20. Which sometimes were disobedient when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
So perhaps the explanation here could be this. The flood symbolized salvation for Noah and his family. Likewise, baptism symbolizes salvation for the, uh, for the child of God. In the case of Noah, and in the instance of the recipient of baptism, both need to possess a commitment to God. The Bible talks about Noah finding grace in God's sight. And here in this passage, it talks about a um, baptism as being an answer of a good conscience toward God. Sometimes people, I think, uh, somewhat have a misguided interpretation of the scripture and think of baptism in and of itself as what actually saves. The, the water actually saved, just as in Noah's day, the water, the water literally saved Noah um, in some ways. And the idea of baptismal regeneration would fit into this, and we'll probably come back and visit that just a little bit later, but the idea that is the literal water, the literal uh, ordinance that, that saves. But I really believe that the lesson here is that the water only symbolizes salvation through Jesus and is a visible sign of an interchange. I, I really believe that when one looks at uh, the rest of Scripture, um, if water could literally save a person, well, let's just go out and grab people and start baptizing them. Let's just get this job done. But no, it's that that's not the way we would understand this at all. Let's look at a few other verses that relate to baptism. Um, that and, and I can't in any way begin to cover the whole scope of, of every verse in the New Testament. We're just going to pick out a few. But in John, or I'm sorry, in Mark 16, 16, there's an interesting, interesting verse there that reads like this. It says, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And this is Mark's version of uh, the Great Commission. And Jesus here is speaking to the disciples, and he says, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Do, do you notice the, the absence of he that believeth and is not baptized? It doesn't put that part of it in to the damned part. So the way I, the way I would see this is that believing is 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 the is the initial step that is the that is the thing that must happen in a person's heart okay and a believer will want to be baptized it, it, it it's just the it's just the next step that a believer will will wish to happen in his life he wants to obey he wants to have that seal he wants to have that sign he wants to have that testimony and Jesus said that a person that believes and then is baptized shall be saved. But what if a person does not believe? Well, it doesn't matter if he's not baptized or not. He shall be damned. Okay? So even though baptism does not save necessarily, it is a significant part of a person that wishes to experience salvation in his life. I find there's an interesting verse also in John 3, 5, when Jesus says to Nicodemus, he says, Verily I say unto thee, except a man be, war be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now there's a lot of different interpretations on that scripture. That I can tell you. Some would say, well, there you go. Uh, born of water, baptism, and of the Spirit. 
Um, well, what is water? Well, um, the Bible also talks of the washing of water by the word. It speaks of that. Um, and in the very next verse, Jesus said, that is, that is born of the flesh is flesh, and that is born of the spirit is spirit. Okay? I tend to believe that this verse probably is saying is that except the man be born the first time of water, and then he is born the second time of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. However, I do like the veiled uh, symbolism. Okay? And that's as far as I'll go with that. Um, water. Baptism. Perhaps there is a bit of symbolism there, but I don't believe that. Again, I, I do not want to. I do not want any idea of baptismal regeneration to be in our thought process. That one must be baptized, or that that is the actual thing that saves a person. But it is indeed something that naturally follows. Okay. Also, I should just point out that when, re- when one reads through the book of Acts especially, receiving salvation and baptism almost always goes simultaneously in the same event. Almost, if not always. And, th- and that is a very, very interesting thing. So, it is significant. It's a significant part of a person that has been saved, of his experience. All right. Number two, baptism also typ- typifies remission of sin. In Acts 2, when Peter's preaching a sermon there at Pentecost, it says, Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. What does it mean to receive remission of sins? It means to be freed from them, to be freed from sin. Paul, whenever he's given his testimony of the Damascus Road in Acts 22, he goes like this. He said, Ananias said to me, and now why, why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So I, I just want to lift out here that just as water washes, baptism symbolizes the washing away of the sins in our lives. Number three, baptism must be mingled with faith. Acts 8.36 and as they went their way, they came upon a certain water. This is, uh, this is here the story of uh, Philip and the eunuch. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That's a very simple um, confession. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And uh, Philip said, there's no reason you can't be baptized. This man had faith. Was it simple faith? It was simple faith. But it was faith enough that Philip said, this man can be baptized. The Hebrew writer says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Take your Bibles and read through the book of Matthew sometime and just write down how many times Jesus commented on the person's faith. Thy faith has made thee whole. Great is thy faith. I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And on and on. Faith, it's the faith. Baptism has to be mingled with faith for it to be meaningful. Number four, baptism must be preceded by repentance. Again, back to Peter in his sermon in Acts 2. And Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the remission of sins. 
The Bible says, If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. To repent means that there is a marked change. Uh, nobody is guessing. Um, sort of like the story Davy gave of, uh, of his customer. Um, you shouldn't be, have to be around a person very long at all until you can, you can seriously pick up whether this person is a repentant. Okay? Is he a person that has truly changed? Is he? Alright, baptism should be practiced only on those where there is visible evidence of conversion. And I, I draw from Peter's observation whenever he was at Cornelius' house in Acts 10. And they had this quite a lengthy conversation. And Peter's observing what's happening. He's listening to what happens. And he's noting what happened. And he's noting Cornelius. And he's, and he's, he's understanding where this man is. And then he, may, he poses this question. He goes, can any man forbid water? that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we. And I say it's no different today. Um, we should not hesitate to baptize a person that is bearing fruit, and we should hesitate to baptize a person that there is no evidence of spiritual fruit, that there is no evidence that the Holy Spirit has taken up um, residence in that person's life. Okay, I'm going to uh, turn a leaf here now, and I want to go to some common discussions that often come up surrounding baptism, and um, and just uh, pick it apart a little bit, talk about it, and um, I have like four things here I'd like to uh, to just um, talk about here. The that almost always will come up whenever a um, a discussion comes up about baptism. So let's talk about the elephant in the room first. How should one be baptized? Should he be poured? Should it be poured? Or should the person be immersed? The, the, the logical next question is how would a person ever know? That, that's, the, that's the logical next question. And I will, tell you, I will tell you why I say that as we move through this. So the two modes, effusion or immersion, which? After studying through this, I have concluded that personally, I cannot be overly dogmatic either way. That is just where I come out, and I will, I will tell you why I come out there as we move along. So let's first of all go to the immersion side of things. Why would there be an argument or a, uh, an idea that a person should be immersed um, when baptized? Okay, so, so let's just be, let's be completely honest. Let's, let's try to decide that we have no bias here. We're going to try to look at it completely objectively. It's always good. We can't completely erase it, but let's try here this morning. So there is credible, very, very credible historical documentation that in the very earliest times of the church, post-apostolic, okay, and even the later parts of, of of the apostles, that the early church was using immersion as a mode of baptism. It's documented. It's in the history books. We may as well not try to get around that. It's there. And we're just, it's totally, we're not being honest if we don't admit that. There's some other things that people would point to as further credibility. Why does it say in John 3 that John the Baptist baptized where there was much water? Much water. 
people will point to that and say, you don't need much water to pour. You need much water to immerse. I would just quickly say here, remember John was in a desert place. It could have been even difficult to come up with a handful if he wasn't close to much water. Okay, And he had a lot of people coming there all the time. So just kind of bear that in mind too. But it does say, it does say that. There was much water. It also point, people also point that it says that Jesus came up out of the water. Okay, so there, there's that part of it too. In Acts 8, uh, there with the, uh, the incidents of Philip and the eunuch, it says they both went down into the water. That's what it says, what the Bible says. People will point to that and say, see, it seems, seems, seems fairly obvious. What about Mark 10, 38? Jesus talks about being baptized with suffering. And people will point to that and say, you know, when you look at the suffering that Jesus endured, it was like he was plunged into suffering. He was immersed in suffering. Interesting. And then the the one that often comes up in Romans 6, where it talks about being buried with Christ in baptism. So here we have four or five different scriptures that a person could read and could say, you know, there, there's some there's some things here that would that would make itself would make the Bible support immersion. And then there is the word itself. Look up in your Strong's Concordance. What does the Greek word baptizo actually mean? There's no getting around it. It means to immerse. That's what my Strong's Concordance says. That's what it says. But let's further understand the Greek word baptizo. Okay, hopefully I'm saying that right, whatever. Whenever the English translators were translating the Bible into English, they came across this Greek word that they didn't know what to do with. Um, there was not an English word like baptism. So what they decided to do was transliterate the word. Now when you transliterate a word, what you do is you take the original word and you put letters from your language to the word and just make a new word. That's called transliterating. So they took the Greek word and they put English letters to it. And they came up with the word baptize and and various um, words like that. Now, and and it's also interesting when you look at the Greek word and you look at the English word, there's only about two letters different. So that that, that, it, it lines up very, 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 very nicely. So now the interesting thing is that when, when, when this translation was taking place, there were words like dip, there was words like immerse, there was words like pour, there was words like uh, sprinkle. But for whatever reason, the translators did not choose to use either of those. They choose, chose to make up a new word. Okay. So, so I just find that interesting. Let's go now to the, to the, um, should I use the word argument? That doesn't sound right, because we don't want to argue about it. Some of the uh, perspectives of the mode of effusion, or pouring, as we call it. It is likewise fascinating to me that there is credible historical documentation that bapti- baptism in the early church took place this way as well. Okay? Can't get around that either. However, some historians would point to the fact that it was only done in situations where immersion was not um, feasible. Okay, whether it was is weather, whether it's it's sickness, mostly sickness, I guess. I'm not sure how much the weather would have played into it. Um, 
because I'm not sure I actually would have read about that. But there was instances where perhaps it didn't work to immerse, so, so this was used instead. And then there's the, uh, there are people that have made studies of pictures in the Roman catacombs and have deducted that some of the earliest depictions of baptism would indicate a pouring method of some sort. Generally, the person receiving the baptism is in the water, somewhat standing in the water, kind of waist deep with someone pouring water over him. Well, that's, that's, I mean, I, I, and truly, I don't know how much we want to base doctrine on, on pictures from the catacombs. Because I was frightened to find out that the Lutherans placed a lot of stock on their, uh, infant baptism because of pictures in the catacombs. So I, I, that just really makes me want to back away from that. But apparently there is some, some of, something like that if a person would want to, uh, would want to, um, I guess hold that for evidence, I guess. There's another interesting thing here that we can look at. There's a helpful study. If a person would look in scriptures like Mark 7, 1 to 4, it talks about the Pharisees giving the disciples grief for not washing their hands before they eat. That word wash there is baptize. They didn't baptize their hands. Okay, I don't know why they chose to use that word or whatever, but, th- but that's what they did. Now, when a person baptizes his hands, he usually doesn't put his entire body into the basin. Okay, so there again, it was a part. It was a part of the body that was being, should we use the word baptized, washed. Also, it talks about washing pots and pans, same word, baptized. In Hebrews 9.10, and I'm just, I'm going to read that because I want to put that in context real quick. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse, we're going to read verses 8 through 10. Now, what, what the Hebrew writer here is talking about, how the first covenant had all these ordinances and da-di-da, he's talking about this. And then he comes to verse 8 and he says, The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way unto holiness was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices, which could not make him that did the service perfect, as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks, and divers' washings and carnal ordinances, imposed on them until the time of the river of Reformation. Now again, this word divers' washings could be translated divers' baptisms, okay? What the Hebrew writer is, is referring back to is if you want to take the time to go back and look at it, there was all kinds of ceremonial washings and cleansings and so on in the, in the Old Testament for many different things. And there was many different ways that, that happened. Sometimes it says the, the person washed his whole body and he washed his clothes. Sometimes it says that the priest would dip his finger in something and he would sprinkle it. Divers washings. Different ways of washing. Okay? So that's kind of an interesting, interesting, um, um, scripture here. And, and the, and the writer uses the word divers baptisms. We don't have the time, but I, I did look into this, this, um, Hebrew word called tabal, T-A-B-A-L. 
And when one looks at the divers' washings that took place in the Old Testament, many times this word tabal, T-A-B-A-L, will come up. And in quite a few of those instances, it would say the priest took his finger, he dipped it generally in the blood, and it said he proceeded to sprinkle, either on the person or on the thing. Dip, sprinkle, dip, sprinkle. And so we have that. But then there is also times where the um, the word is used, um, and it would only signify that there was a dipping. There was no sprinkling. I bring this up to say that I think that's what the Hebrew writer is referring to when he talked about divers' baptisms. Sometimes it was done this way. Other times it was done that way. How about symbolism? Well, we point to that at times. In Acts 2, Peter specifically said that what took place there on Pentecost was the pouring out of the Spirit. And if baptism is a pouring out of the Spirit, um, the mode of pouring is a very nice symbolism. Also in Ezekiel 36, 25, um, again, some very interesting wording here. God speaking here, Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart will I give you, and a new spirit will I put therein, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Okay? Here again, notice the symbolism. Sprinkle water upon you, you will be clean. I will give you a new heart, you will be clean. The prophecy of John the Baptist, whenever he talked about being baptized with the Holy Ghost and with fire, That could mean a number of different things as well, but just think about it at the day of Pentecost, whenever the Holy Ghost was given to those people, did the fire engulf them, or did it come, and did it come and as a symbol on the head? Just an interesting interesting symbolism again. And then there is circumstantial evidence. Just as Philip and the eunuch went into the water, and people point to that and say, see, that, that would be evidence for immersion. A person can likewise point to the jailer or uh, the house of Cornelius or the day of Pentecost and say, we have absolutely no record that this was done through immersion. In fact, to just the average reader, you would, you would guess that perhaps it was not. Okay. Let's pull these loose ends together. I think I've given enough, uh, I've confused you enough now. Okay. Let's, let, let's just conclude these few things. There is absolutely no conclusive evidence that one way or the other is better, or that it was exclusively practiced one way or the other. People have tried, and um, there has been many a spirited argument on this thing. Don't do that. Just, just, uh, just eschew that. Because there is, that's the reason we argue about it, because nobody can come up with any conclusive evidence. There is... Inherent symbolisms both way. And there is definitely a, poor, um, a uh, convenience factor that goes into the, into the um, pouring method. But I don't know we should always um, do things just for convenience, but that is an obvious, an obvious advantage. My conclusion has been that church practice is based much more on tradition and preference than hard, conclusive biblical evidence. Some churches have gone to this, where they allow the recipient to determine the mode. 
They'll do it either way. They'll allow you to decide. I'm going to go on record as saying that I'm not really in favor of that. Because I have a feeling that what could end up happening is people will begin to have this little snide, little attitude that I was baptized better than you. My baptism means more than yours. It'd be no different than Paul when he wrote to the Corinthian church. He said, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you. Because if I would have, you'd have said I was baptized better because Paul baptized me. He says, as far as I know, I didn't baptize anybody except that I think it was the house of Stephanus or something like that, he goes. So I think it's, it's very wise for a church to decide how it's going to happen and then go with that. Never forget that while water is indeed a part of the ceremony, the ceremony, the quantity and method are minor points. Minor points. Let's refrain from dogmatism. I would hesitate to say either is the scriptural mode, but a scriptural mode. Okay? And I think we do well as a church, and I'm very, very happy with our stance that if someone comes into our number and he has been baptized with immersion, we recognize that baptism. That's not a problem with us. Um, on the other hand, uh, the churches that immerse don't usually reciprocate that recognition. Okay? Now, I'm not just, I'm not saying that as a black eye to them. I'm just saying that is the case, generally speaking. Let's move on. Another thing that often is discussed with this thing of baptism is how much time should elapse between the time a person is converted till he's baptized. Again, a point of much discussion. And I will say that when you read through the book of Acts, it does not appear that much time elapses. And I will also say that when when one reads history of early Anabaptism, again, not a lot of time elapses between the time a person is converted to he's baptized. As As I have studied this, it seems like the Anabaptist movement, as it matured and persecution became less of an issue... And it became much easier for a person to receive baptism and not really be born again. That seems to be the time period that there was this uh, period of instruction, okay, that, that kind of came to, to fore. So before a person would be actually baptized, there would be a period of instruction and communication between the, the, um, the leaders of the group and the, and the person that was applying for baptism. I don't believe there's a lot of merit in unduly delaying baptism. But neither do I believe it has to be rushed into. We've already determined that it isn't the actual event that saves a person, but it is something that a person should desire. So how much time should there be? You're wanting the answer, aren't you? You know what the answer is? I don't know. I'm not exactly sure. But I think it should be somewhere between too long and not long enough. How's that for an answer? This point could be discussed at length. I'm going to leave it at that. But it is, it is, healthy to, it is a healthy point, I think, to, to, to give some thought to. How about this thing of baptism being tied with church membership? In our world today, there is um, there's many who would feel that there should not be such a tie, that you should be baptized into this bourgeois universal church 
and there should be no tacking of a membership to an individual body associated with baptism. Let's just get right to the chase here. That is a very, very new concept. That's not the way it reads in Acts. They were baptized and the Lord added to the church. That's what happened. And the churches were in Antioch or they were in Corinth or they were in Laodicea or they were wherever they were. But this idea that you separate the two is somewhat of a new idea. And it has it has been um, put on steroids with our acceptance of the idea of pietism and these ideas that um, my relationship with God is all that counts and my relationship with you doesn't really count that much at all. And so it doesn't really matter. Far too broad of a subject for me to get into uh, in, in, at length um, this morning. The 1 Corinthians 12, 13 reads, For by one spirit we are baptized into one body. And if you continue to read through the book of 1 Corinthians there, that one body clearly becomes the church at Corinth. Okay, The body, it's the church, that's what it is. Why would someone want to be baptized and not be a part of the church? I mean, gladly receive the word and baptized and added to the church. That, that's such a theme that comes through in, in the book of, of Acts that I, I just think we can't ignore that. And I think any fair-minded, unbiased reader would come to that same conclusion. Okay, last point. What about infant baptism? We don't talk about that very much. Not much at all, because we... Um, we um, we know where we're at on that one. We don't believe in it. Good enough, you know? It's interesting to me that the reason, I think the reason we don't talk about it is because that is an issue that was wrote about and talked about and there's been more books and read through the complete writings of Men of Simons and you'll get tired of hearing about infant baptism. It, just, it was just a theme with him and, and many of the other people of those days. Why? Because they were literally turning society on its ear by insisting that you had to be a believer before you should be baptized. And the excuses abound. Um, they would point to, you know, the, um, the Jewish boy being circumcised on the eighth day. They would insist that the faith is passed on through godly parents. They would point to Jesus talking about the children being, uh, you have to become like children to enter the kingdom. They would point to the jailer and Cornelius and says that how that they baptize their households and on and on and on the arguments go. Proof texting. Let's, let's be careful we don't do that on any issue, but here again, uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a point that many would point to that um, uh, believe in infant baptism. I find it interesting that in the Shalai time confession of faith, which was the very first confession of faith the Anabaptists came up with in the early 1500s, this is their first point, absolute first. There was like seven articles. This was the first article. It reads like this. Notice concerning baptism. That's how they, they, they started out the article. Baptism shall be given to all those who have been taught repentance and amendment of life and who believe truly that their sins have been taken away through Christ and to all those who desire to walk in the resurrection of Jesus and be buried with him in death so that they may rise with him. To all those with such an understanding themselves desire and request it from us, and hereby is excluded all infant baptism, and they make they hold no uh, they withhold nothing when they say the greatest and first abomination of the Pope. They just put it out there. Well, 
I, I also found it very surprising. I was not aware of this until I was studying for this. That was the early 1500s. By the late 1600s, in Switzerland at least, many Anabaptists were grudgingly allowing the state church to baptize their children. I did not know that. That was news to me. But we have to understand that in those societies, infant baptism, the baptism of the infant was not a whole lot different than us issuing birth certificates for our children. In other words, if you didn't have baptismal record in the state church, you, you in essence didn't have a birth certificate. In fact, in the country, many people's birthdays were based on their baptismal date. So after being hunted and, and given grief for 150 years, I was surprised that, that many Anabaptists, or at least some, were, uh, were allowing their babies to be baptized in that late date, um, basically using the excuse, you know what, doesn't matter. We're going to rebaptize them sometime anyway, but just for the sake of peace in the society, let's just get it done. I'm not sure how, how rampant or what percentage would have done that, but it, it did indeed happen. Okay, we have to wrap this up. On this thing of infant baptism yet, we believe in adult baptism. What is a person an adult? What's he an adult? Somewhere between too young and too old, right? Again, we, we don't we don't have the, the answers for all these all these questions. But but could I could I maybe just just throw out the idea that it's probably not three or six? Probably not. In other words, I just wanna I just wanna just 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 have us think through this that let's not get involved in modified infant baptism either. Okay? Let's just be careful, let's think through things. And this isn't a discussion that's appropriate for this point in time. But I think there's, there's, there's ways we can help our children as they mature, as they become aware of God, and when they are actually ready to receive that step of uh, receiving Christ as their Savior and desiring baptism. Okay, let's conclude. What did we conclude here? We concluded that baptism doesn't save. Doesn't, 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 that's, not, that's not what saves us. But we've also concluded that uh, it's something that every Christian should desire and every Christian should experience if there's no good reason not to. Now, the thief on the cross wasn't baptized, but I believe I'll talk to him someday in heaven. All right, so we understand that we understand those, um, those, um, those nuances. Let's honor God by receiving it gladly. Just as our, as our primary uh, Sunday school class said, you know, I'm going to be happy if we do these things. And I do, I do truly believe that it does bring happiness when we, when we do what God would wish for us to do.